Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, your name is excellent in all the earth, for you have loved us poor and undeserving sinners with an everlasting love that moved to give your Son into death for our salvation. You have made us a little lower than the angels, but in Christ Jesus, you have exalted us to your right hand and given us dominion over all the works of your hands, having put all things under our feet. For all your exceedingly great and precious blessings, we give you thanks and praise. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Today is the Feast of the Holy Trinity, and that is highlighted throughout the week in the Congregation at Prayer, which when you get it is printed on white paper. So the paraments today are white, uh, the color associated with the triune God and divinity and holiness. In a few things to highlight from the Congregation at Prayer, the verse for the week is John 3, verse 5, we will encounter it in our Bible class today as we do the catechesis uh, of Jesus to Nicodemus. Psalm 8 is not in our, you know, couple of year praying through all 150 psalms, but rather is the psalm associated with the Feast of the Holy Trinity. The prayer that I use to begin Bible class is based on that psalm. The Catechism for the Week, since Jesus talks to Nicodemus about baptism being born from above of water and the Spirit, the section from the Catechism is what is baptism and which is that Word of God. I really like this because it keeps moving in the direction of Joanne over here. This is cool. Um, so there's also the prayer of thanksgiving for the benefits of baptism associated. So if you remember, during the summertime, we break away from our praying through sequentially the catechism, and parts of the catechism are selected that fit in with the theme for the day or for the week. So that's why you have the section on baptism given Jesus' catechesis to Nicodemus. Uh, the end of last week, we began the summer series of readings, which will go through the entire, in the daily readings, the entire Gospel of Matthew, but in short excerpts. So for example, last Friday we had the temptation of our Lord, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Now on Monday, Jesus' ministry and the call of the fishermen, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. And then on Tuesday, the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes and so forth. So it is a Slow motion walk, giving you opportunity to meditate upon the Gospel of Matthew. The second reading throughout the summer will be short excerpts from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah's prophecy is 66 chapters long. A number of the chapters are quite lengthy. But what is contained in this lectionary are excerpts from just about every chapter kind of sequentially through. You don't have to necessarily expect there to be a connection between the Matthew reading and the Isaiah reading, but there should be wonderful material for you to meditate on in those daily readings. So that's what I wanted to uh, mention. You'll also notice we continue to publish 
and pray for in celebration of baptismal birthdays and wedding anniversaries. So if you have never turned in um, a copy of your baptismal certificate or given the dates of your baptism or wedding anniversary, please do so and then we will include you in the weekly prayers. All right. Second item before getting to the main part of the study is I printed off what I thought was uh, quite a well-done piece by the Synod, Racism, a Christian Response. I'm not going to go through it uh, all today. I'm going to make a few general comments given the, the, the signs of our times. This was actually uh, published in October of 1996, but it, it's actually very well done. Um, I would accent a couple of other themes that are touched on here, but going a little bit more into depth. Um, historic Christianity, going all the way back into the Old Testament and to the beginning, does not have any kind of notion of different races. So, in fact, the word race or the sin, racism, doesn't occur in the Bible anywhere. Um, what you have is God created all in his image and all are descendants of the one man, Adam. And it's very cool to note that if you do some uh, reading on genetics, that the basic fundamental uh, makeup of the DNA of all of us can be traced back to those three guys that came out of the ark, all of whom were sons of Noah, that go all the way back to Adam. So, now I don't want to compare us to dogs, but dog is one kind. We know uh, through breeding and so forth that there are variations in dogs, right? You've got the German Shepherd or, or a, a Labrador Retriever, which is a very nice dog, and then you've got uh, the Poodle, which is a very horrible dog, <laughs> but, but, but they're all of the same kind. They're not of a different kind. So also all people, they come in various shapes and sizes and colors, but we are all of the same kind. What the Bible does describe in terms of sin is how sin bends us inward and we become full of pride and arrogance, you know, going all the way back before the Tower of Babel, but the Tower of Babel stands as man's monument, idolatrous monument to self-worship. And so uh, the exercise of power to coerce and oppress others is something that is fundamentally the characteristic of the sinful flesh. Uh, it gets dressed up in terms of racism and so forth uh, like that. One of the things that we suffer in, in our times is, is that, and you've experienced this, if you are white, then you are a racist. And um, that's a very unfortunate kind of a thing. You have to know that for the average bloke out there on the street who wants to be a nice person, when they hear a, a, a statement like Black Lives Matter, well, of course, 
who can deny that basic statement? But Black Lives Matter with a capital B and a capital L and a capital M is an organization. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but that particular organization has the most radical leftist views as a part of their charter, including um, all of the attack upon what it is to be a man and a woman, you know, this transgenderism and so forth. That's all a part of the quote-unquote Black Lives Matter movement. Again, to the average bloke on the street, who can object to the idea that black people are legitimate people? Okay? So people get sucked into um, the slogans, and they have to be careful about what those organizations like Antifa and Black Lives Matter are really all about. They are the organizations, those two in particular, that have been inciting riots, uh, insurrection, and rebellion across the country, which is not Christian in, every, in any way, shape, manner, or form. Okay? Um, God did so love the world, which is made up of all people from every tribe and nation and language of people, but we are all descendants of the one man, Adam. And more importantly, we are all redeemed by the Son of God who in his incarnation became the second Adam and he assumed, as the Athanasian Creed says, he assumed the human nature into the Godhead. How about that? In order to then redeem us through the blood of his cross. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating about my trips to Africa and particularly in West Africa, Ghana, and Nigeria, is there is none of the culture, none of the culture of American kind of inner city black culture that we see in our country, which unfortunately seems to have a chip on its shoulder over against uh, the society as a whole in a lot of, a lot of cases. Black Lives Matter and Antifa have as their objective the destruction of the rule of law and the destruction of the American way of life as a constitutional uh, republic where it's based upon the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the branches of government that descend from that. So it is really, these are really anarch, uh, uh, anarchistic uh, kinds of organizations out to destroy, and a lot of uh, well-intentioned people get, get drawn into this. Back to the Africa um, uh, experience. Uh, to our, to our eyes, you go to Africa, like when I stepped off the plane for the first time in Ghana, uh, I was the lone person with white skin, light-colored skin. So you really, you really stand out in the sea of, of that rich black color. But what I was unaware of is they can tell the difference between tribes just by looking at the facial features and the change, slight change in complexion. I couldn't see that. But what you have in Africa, in place of what in the United States is called racism, what you have in Africa is tribalism. But it's the same thing, just dressed up in other, in other terms. Again, it's, a, it's the sinful use, oppressive use of power and authority 
to dominate someone else. So I think it's important to um, kind of clarify those uh, things. And I think this essay does a pretty good job. Joanne? Um, I found it interesting. I just learned this last week, as I'm sure many did. I meant to bring our handheld mic, but OK. Oh, yeah. You, um, about that all lives matter is now the most racist thing anyone could ever say. Yeah, see, Which, that's unfortunate, isn't it? Right, and it's another hit on Christians and the church also. Correct. All, all lives do, in fact, matter from the time of conception yep. to the most aged and infirm who die of sickness, disease, or so-called natural death. Yeah. Can't say it. yeah, And it's the sanctity of human life. And so uh, there, is, there is no less racist religion than Christianity and its uh, view of anthropology. Kurt? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I had difficulty getting that word out, but it's anarchy. That's what they that's what's promoted, right? And and the destruction of authority in in any sense. And and this in no way justifies what the police officer did to George Floyd. He he ought to be he ought to be punished and, and to the fullest extent of the law. So, but that doesn't, just because there are, there's a bad apple here or there among the police doesn't mean that they all should be, you know, eliminated. All right, so I want to move on now to our Bible study. What we're going to do is the, the Sunday school lessons I'm preparing for families to use throughout the week uh, at home to help complete the Lutheran Catechesis Sunday school series, we're also going to do in Bible class. So it helps me to uh, kill two stones with one bird. Oh, no. Two birds with one stone. Okay. So John 3 is the text before us, and there are two categories of Bible stories in our Sunday school curriculum as it continues to be developed. Uh, one are catechism stories, and the other are church year stories. The catechism stories are those chosen specifically to correspond to certain parts of the catechism. Church year stories are those that especially highlight uh, the church year. This is one of them. Uh, last week we had the Bible reading from Acts 2 for the Sunday School lesson, uh, the account of Pentecost. Today, on Holy Trinity Sunday, the historic reading is John 3, Jesus' catechesis with Nicodemus. And uh, I remember years ago when I first started to use the historic one-year lectionary, I actually kind of scratched my head, why is this account chosen for the Feast of the Holy Trinity? And I'd like, to, um, I'd like to go there first by reading the text of John 3, so you have it in your ears if you don't have your Bible, and then highlight uh, the Trinity in the text. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We learn elsewhere in the New Testament that Nicodemus was a part of the Sanhedrin, uh, a Pharisee on that Sanhedrin that was responsible for sentencing Jesus to death. Now, neither at the time of Jesus' trial, neither uh, Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus consented to his death, but he was a member of that particular group. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Throughout the Gospel of John, unlike the Synoptic Gospels, but throughout the Gospel of John, the emphasis upon Jesus as rabbi or teacher and the things that he as rabbi and teacher teaches is for the sake of faith. Okay. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Now, where is the Trinity explicitly or implicitly referred to by Jesus? He does so in terms of the persons of the Trinity being mentioned. So in verse 16, this classic passage that everyone knows by heart, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Context, context, context always means everything. So here, the reference to God is speaking about God the Father who gave in love his only begotten Son. The Holy Spirit in verse 6 is mentioned, that which is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Spirit. In verse 8, the Holy Spirit is compared to the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In verse 11, I found this most interesting. Jesus says, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen 
and you do not receive our witness. Now, the New King James Bible, at least in my edition, it does capitalize the plural pronouns. Uh, some have simply said, well, that refers to Jesus and then like the prophets. But no, it, it is a reference, a plural pronoun, to the three persons of the Trinity. And there's a linkage in two places in scripture in particular. In the book of Genesis, which John's gospel is patterned after, you know how Genesis begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, etc. And at the end of chapter one, then God said, let us, plural pronoun, make man in our image according to our likeness a reference to the triune God. In Genesis 11, which was last Sunday's Old Testament reading for Pentecost, you have man saying, let us make a name for ourselves. Luther comments about how idolatrous man apes God, wanting to be like God or usurp God's position. And then the Lord God says, let us go down and confuse their language. So the use of the plural pronoun in the Old Testament is found in some very significant places. In the New Testament, it's also important when a gospel writer like John has also written an epistle. In his epistle, he is catechizing us on what Jesus said or, uh, uh, or did in the gospels. So for example, in 1st John, which is his epistle, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, 1st John chapter 5, he talks about, in John's catechesis, the victory that overcomes the world and all of its problems and sin is faith in Christ. Now, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. This is what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. To be born from above is to be brought to the miracle of repentance and faith that trusts in Jesus. In, in the catechesis with Nicodemus, notice how many times, and in this verse 11, we testify what we know. You don't receive our testimony. Notice how the language of testimony then is brought about in 1 John 5, as the testimony of the triune God through the gifts of the word and the sacraments for the sake of faith. So in 1 John chapter 5, we'll just pick it up at verse 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Do you see the connection with John 3? Oh, I should say it now. The phrase born again, that is used by, here, Becca, are you a born again Christian? You've got to give the right answer. Will you have a... Yes, you are a born-again Christian. When did you become a born-again Christian? In your baptism. Very good. All right. You got both answers correctly. So, but the born-again phrase in your English Bibles is not the best translation. The better translation is born from above. The born-again language of American evangelicals understands faith as a decision of the human will. So if you were to ask, if you were a born-again Christian, Becca, 
And I said, are you a born-again Christian? You'd say, yes, I'm a born-again Christian. And then if I said, when did you become a born-again Christian? You'd say, when I made my decision to follow Jesus. That's when I became a born-again Christian. And yet, I have to add the extra syllables to make it more effective. Okay, so you see what that does to faith, instead of being a miracle of God's word and spirit, faith becomes the product of human reason and intellect. Okay, that's why infants aren't baptized, because they can't, you know, come to that kind of decision for Christ. Which, of course, how many of you decided to be conceived and born? Raise your hand. Okay, you see, none of us did. As the first birth is a miracle, so the new birth is a miracle. All right, but back to the text. I mean, the language of being born and born from above and born from God is all over Jesus' catechesis in John chapter 3. So here in 1 John 5, verse 4, whatever is born of God. You see, it's referring to the same miracle of faith. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, or your faith, the, the trust of the heart that is centered in Christ. This is what gives us victory over the world. Do you see why for us in our times, the most important thing the church can do is to testify to the Lord Jesus, to call to repentance and faith, to preach the word for the sake of faith, because that's the only thing that can overcome the world with all of its problems. So the temptation is for the church to be about something different than what the church has always been about. And as I say in the sermon this morning, you know, the times that we're going through right now, whether it's through a pandemic and its aftermath and so forth, or the insurrection and rebellion, this is nothing new. Just read the Bible. Pestilence all over the place. Famine all over the place. Wars and rumors of wars all over the place. Insurrection and rebellion all over the place. Sodom and Gomorrah all over the place. So the church has to be what the church only can be, because guess what? You're not going to find the gospel or the word of God preached anywhere else. So if we don't do it, which is our rightful uh, heritage, then who will? Okay, so who is he who overcomes the world? Now, what John does is he defines the nature of this faith. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Quios tu theu, Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth, see, that's a reference to, his, to the man Christ Jesus in the flesh. True man is the Son of God, true God. Jesus is Lord. All right, so there's the victory, and you see this in John chapter 3. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. All right, now to the idea of testimony. Again, John 3.11, we testify what we know. Well, no one knows God better than himself. Would you agree with that? So all the people who claim to know what God thinks, what God feels, what God would do, you know, if God, if God could speak, he would embrace, trans, embrace transgenderism. Well, that's their opinion, but that's not God's point of view. God's point of view is contained in the word. All right. So this is he who came by water and blood, namely Jesus, who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, 
but by water and blood. Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born of water and the Spirit. At the end of John's Gospel, the blood and the water flowed forth from Jesus' side when he was pierced as the second Adam, and the church was formed from his side as Eve was formed from the side of Adam. And it is the Spirit who bears witness. How about that? Because the Spirit is truth. So the Spirit bears witness. In John's Gospel, the catechesis we heard so much of during Eastertide, the Spirit is called the Comforter, the Helper, and so forth, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Now look at verse 7. There are three who bear witness in heaven. Now you don't even have to read the next part to understand who those three are. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. Again, the witness is to Jesus is the Son of God. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bears witness to the truth of the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh, who redeemed the world through the shedding of his blood. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Notice how that parallels uh, what Jesus said about the witness. He says, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I, if I have told you earthly things, and you're a bumbling idiot, no, excuse me, that's a variant reading, and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Which, of course, is what Jesus is trying to do, but he can't even grasp the earthly things. How many earthly things are we you know, dumbbells when it comes to understanding. Just ask my wife all the things I don't understand. There are many and varied. So back to 1 John 5. He says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. Notice the reference to the Father and the Son again, and the Spirit has already been so explicitly mentioned. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. So. God witnesses to the salvation in his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and to believe in him is to have that witness in ourselves. And St. Paul will talk about how this is how the Spirit continues to bear witness in our hearts that we belong to God. So if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. Notice, God gives the testimony. Who is this God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father who has sent the Son. The Son who has preached and who has come into the world in obedience to the Father, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son and who carries along the holy prophets and apostles in their inspired writings and witness and so forth. It's God who bears witness to his Son. What a privilege it is for the church in her ministers 
and in the confession of the creeds of the church to confess this witness of the triune God before the world. And so I said this morning, the Athanasian Creed is so often thought of as a, um, an obscure kind of uh, creed, what, what lofty language of over 1,500 years old, what relevance does it have today? It has absolute relevance today, chiefly, as I said, because it's the truth. And the truth of God is always relevant, even if we're like Nicodemus and don't understand it. But it has relevance as it talks about the incarnation of the Son of God and how all human beings are uh, descendants of, of him. All right, finishing up 1 John 5. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. As the Son of Man, as, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's a reference both to the incarnation and to the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life. See how the, the epistle of John simply revisits and amplifies the catechesis of Jesus in John 3. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So it's a very important thing to help us understand and interpret the scriptures that you allow the scriptures to interpret themselves. And when you're dealing with an author like John who writes the gospel, you look at his epistle and you can see how he is going back and expanding. Kurt. John, uh, it's, it's various times uh, refers to Jesus or the Son of God as the Word. Yes. The Word became flesh and blood. Um, if you didn't hear that, uh, John refers many times to G Jesus, not only as Son of God, but as the Word of God, the Logos. Yeah, I'm just wondering, is uh, reference to him as word, is that come from because, you know, I guess Luther speaks of it several times that uh, the, the Bible, every word or every page is about Jesus. So that scripture testifies of Jesus all the time. Is that why he's referred as to the word? Yeah, the, the, the word logos in the Greek is a, a rich uh, and deep concept. There are other words in Greek that can be translated word or words, which really highlight and emphasize um, spoken language, okay, or written language. Uh, logos is a deeper uh, meaning than that. Certainly when God the Father spoke, he is creating all things through the eternal word who happens to be a person, which is a mind-boggling kind of concept. But the, but the connection that you make is correct, that the Bible, which is written words, and the preaching and teaching of it through oral words, and what the prophets spoke, and what the apostles spoke, has as its center the divine logos, the eternal word of the Father, who is the Son of God, 
and the Savior through whom all things were made. So it is, uh, there, there is a connection there that everything in the scriptures finds its fulfillment then in the Son of God, the eternal Word who became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay. So those are the connections of the, the Holy Trinity. I began by saying, you know, how does, uh, or how did it come about that this particular passage was in the church's history in the one-year series associated with Holy Trinity? There's just a lot more uh, than meets the eye, perhaps, upon first reading, that the triune God is throughout uh, John chapter 3 in Jesus' catechesis. Then, when you see the witness of the triune God, and you see how Jesus is saying, look, you cannot understand who God is. You cannot even understand who I am as the Son of God and Savior, apart from the miracle of faith, which God the Holy Spirit works through the testimony of God's Word and Spirit in the waters of holy baptism. You, you can't get it. And then you, you understand, oh, now I guess Luther maybe is right. In the third article, Catechism, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So you, you see the, the Spirit testifying and working the miracle of faith. You see God the Father giving his Son. You see the Son of the Father who is nailed to the cross and offered up as our salvation. And all of this then goes back to what we say over and over again, and I can't repeat it enough. God's nature is self-giving, sacrificial love. Uh, not simply for those who seem, quote, worthy, but the sacrificial, self-giving love of God for unworthy sinners. So there you have, in John's Gospel, in that John 3.16, the Holy Trinity, his nature of self-giving, sacrificial love. And this is what the Holy Spirit testifies to, the spirit of love who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there's a wonderful richness there in swimming around in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And God wants us to understand who he is on the basis of what he does according to his word. When you understand that Jesus is talking about baptism with Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the spirit. We'll take a look at that. Then, and in conjunction with this then celebration of the Trinity, then Jesus' words recorded at the end of Matthew's Gospel make sense. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or in Mark's Gospel, when you understand Jesus' words, which are the promise of our baptism, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him are those who have been born from above by water and the Spirit. So then Mark's Gospel says, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Do you see how they, how they cross, relate, and help to interpret each other? All right. Let's, let's pause here before I go on to some other items and see if you have any other comments or questions. Wally. Nicodemus asked a good question. He's trying to see the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is right in front of him when he's asking. That is correct. The kingdom of God is right in front of him, Jesus. Good. That's excellent. So, I mean, but Jesus was 
I won't say smart enough, but just what the way I'm. You can say smart enough. I would say enough. Jesus was smart enough. He was smart enough to wait upon him to say, uh, well, the, the Father told me this. Or he's waiting for Jesus to, 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 to know that the Father had presented uh, Jesus as the Son of God before him, but he never did. Nicodemus never got it. Never, Nicodemus didn't get the idea that the Father presented his son. That's a good way. And he did that through the signs and the wonders that Jesus performed and the testimony of the prophets and so forth. Yeah. Uh, Jesus also, so you bring up Nicodemus and Jesus being smart enough to deal with him. Um, you see another example of how Jesus catechizes. He meets Nicodemus where he is to bring him to greater understanding. But the Jews never connect between the kingdom of God and the, and, and the royal nature of God being the, there at that time. The, the Jews at that time are not connecting the kingdom of God with the person of the Son of God. Because now is the day of salvation. They never got that. Correct. Now is the day of salvation in the person of Jesus. Good. Turning off the mic as I go right in front of the speaker so it doesn't blow your mind with feedback. All right, any other uh, comments that you, or questions that you want to make? All right, let's take a look at the specific reference to what it is to be born from above. And you have here, again, let me repeat the preliminary statement. We cannot know and understand and believe apart from the miracle of faith. So that had to be wrought in Nicodemus. In what the part that Wally just mentioned, to, to see the kingdom of God, or to enter the kingdom of God, is to believe in Jesus and to enter into Jesus. Uh, the epistles talk a lot about being in Christ. There's another wonderfully rich baptismal uh, discussion there in baptism, we are placed, the Greek is en Christo, in Christ, joined to his death and resurrection. So to enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus says here, is to enter into Christ by water and the Spirit. Isn't that fantastic? To see, in John's gospel, seeing is believing. Not in the sense that we say, unless I see, I will not believe, but in the sense of insight enlightenment of faith. So in verse 3, Jesus says to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, or as I said, the better translation is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Seeing is to believe. Nicodemus using his human reason, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? God forbid, especially for the mom. Jesus answered, now in verse 5, he's repeating what he says in verse 3, but in slightly different language. Most assuredly. Now this most assuredly, anytime you come into that language in the New Testament, it means pay attention. This is really important. Everything's important, but this is really, really important. Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me let you in on a false interpretation here. In the American evangelical world who reject baptismal regeneration as a miracle, to be born of water and of the Spirit, 
when quoting this verse, are considered to be two different things. To be born of water is when you're born the first time and there's a big splashdown as the mama's water breaks and the baby pops out and it's all this mucus and water from the womb that pours out. That's what it is to be born of water. And then to be born of the spirit is something that happens later on. But the Greek forbids this interpretation because the article joins together water and spirit. You see it in the Greek, you don't necessarily see it in the English. But unless one is born of the water and the spirit as one thing, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this is what gives way to the understanding of the necessity of uh, baptismal regeneration for the sake of faith. No one who is called to repentance and faith refuses the gift that God offers in baptism. Now Jesus goes on to talk about how this is a miracle that is not from ourselves. I draw your attention again to the third article explanation in the Catechism. I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And <clears throat> we most often, I think, quote Paul's use of the term flesh. In the Greek, the word is sarks. And he uses sarks, flesh, to denote the sinful nature. John also uses it, but he uses it in a double sense for a conjoined meaning. In John 1, the passage that Kurt mentioned earlier, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, literally. The word flesh there is sarks. Now, when the word became flesh, sarks, in Jesus, in the incarnation, we're talking about pure flesh, pure humanity without sin. But he became pure humanity, the word became flesh, in order to take the corruption of our flesh. You see? So the passage we talk about, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So here, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, is John's emphasis upon the nature of our humanity since the fall, how our nature is corrupted. And that which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, means that natural man cannot bring himself to faith, cannot bring himself to see or to enter into Christ and his kingdom. But these are miracles and gifts of the Spirit alone. So then, of course, Jesus is anticipating Wally that uh, he scratched his head more times than I have to lose the hair. He's anticipating that Nicodemus doesn't get it. And he says, do not marvel that I said you must be born from above. And then he talks about the work of the spirit and compares it to the air, to the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. What's the point of original origin of the breeze that's coming across the patio? I mean, who can say? 
Now, we, if, we're, if it's blowing from the west, then the, um, the cow manure on the other side of 164, we might, we might smell it, but that's not where the wind's origin is, is it? Well, he uses this to talk then about the spirit. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. How does it happen? When does it happen? Well, it happens through the breath or the wind of the spirit. But this is also a wonderful thing because who can say, apart from the sacrament of baptism, which we can identify as a time and place, who can say when we first came to see, to believe in the Son of God? You think of the Emmaus disciples in Luke 24. They were walking with Jesus, and he's opening the scriptures to them. To use Jesus' analogy here, the wind was blowing, the breath of the Spirit through his preaching. It's a wonderful thing because nobody can speak in a vacuum. You've got to have air. You've got to have air. In the Old Testament, it's the same word, spirit and, and wind or breath, same word. So here, the breath of the Spirit is through preaching. And those Emmaus disciples were walking, and Jesus is opening up the scriptures to them, showing them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die and to rise again. And it's not until they see him in the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, that they then reflect back, did not our hearts burn within us? That heartburn was the miracle of faith created by the Spirit of God through the breath of Jesus preaching. Okay. Well, Nicodemus doesn't get it. How can these things be? Jesus answered and said, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Remember, what did Jesus, uh, Nicodemus call Jesus? Rabbi, teacher of Israel. I, most assuredly, I say to you, here's the third time. The first was in verse 3, to be born again or born from above to see the kingdom. The second in verse 5, a clear reference to baptism, born of water and the Spirit, to enter into Christ. And now verse 11, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. So the Holy Trinity is revealed to us through water and the Spirit at our baptism as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then in the wonderful Apostles and later the Nicene Creed, all that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done in self-giving love for us is there articulated. Okay. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, which is a way of speaking against all forms of works righteousness but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man. So Jesus becomes, the Son of God, becomes the Son of Man that we, baptized into the kingdom of God, into Jesus, might ascend with him to the Father's right hand. That whoever believes, excuse me, and as Moses was lifted up in the, by, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. Now, I should have put the reference on your sheet. It's Numbers 21, verse 9, the lifting up of the bronze serpent. You remember that the children of Israel had rebelled against God, and in judgment for their sin, he sent what is called fiery serpents, which are poisonous, vipers, serpents, to bite them. And so they're dying. What they're dying of is their sin. What they're dying of is the judgment of God against them because of their sin. So as Moses lifted up this, and then he was told to lift up a bronze serpent, and if you look to it, you see that was faith in what God provided. So there was a promise of deliverance from death by looking in faith to the bronze serpent on a pole that God provided. You follow? So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He becomes the curse for us who deserve the curse. He suffers the judgment of hell and condemnation and death that we deserve. So he is lifted up upon the altar of the cross like that serpent in the Old Testament. So God indeed made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, and as the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Well, this ends then the section, its climactic moment. As we said before, this new birth of water and the spirit, a clear reference to the miracle of baptism. And Mark records Jesus' word, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The content of baptismal faith is God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. All right, uh, which is a great comment against any notion of racism at the end. Any last comment? Because we're needing to adjourn and those who are coming to 10.30 service to make their way in. Any other comments or questions? Let us... Now, see, this was good because we had overcast most of the time, and now that we had some sun at the end, you're realizing, Pastor's right, I need to bring a hat. And sunglasses. And sunglasses, which I will have. I have them inside, both the hat and the sunglasses. Let us close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that for Jesus' sake, baptism works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as your words and promises declare. Comfort us and strengthen our faith in Jesus with the promise that whoever believes in him and is baptized will be saved, and with the promise, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And next week at Bible class, the rich man and Lazarus. Okay.